Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. With the help of a camera, especially a digital camera and the Internet, we may now see portions of what other people have seen and sent our way, or perhaps have made public. Sometime soon, I hope to present some visual images I think special, in addition to the sound images you may now hear on the Radio Curious website, radiocurious.org. In preparation for creating those images, I found my way to an intriguing photography website called www.kenrockwell.com. This website has many references about cameras, how to use and choose them, and it also tells the story of a man who freely shares his knowledge and skills about photography. After reading his website, I invited Ken Rockwell to join us for a conversation about photography, cameras, websites, and the use of the Internet. Ken Rockwell and I visited by phone in early May 2006 from his home near San Diego, California. For him, good photography narrows down to seeing better, which he describes to be more of a feeling than an actual momentary vision. Ken Rockwell, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you very much. Ken, when you take a photograph, what do you see just before you decide to snap the shutter? Gee, I don't really see anything. I just kind of feel the thought that, gee, this, might, this is cool. And just the camera kind of goes away. It, it's really just, a, just an experience more than that. Well, what makes up cool? Gee, you know, I don't really ask myself that. When I'm photographing, I'm not trying to put numbers or qualifications on things. It's really a, just a labor of love and emotion. What kind of things do you photograph? Wild colors. For example? For example, of course, we all know sunsets. Many people just don't have their eyes attuned. Uh, I, I feel myself kind of like an insect, uh, just looking for brilliant color. And brilliant color can happen, of course, in sunsets, but it can also happen in the artificially painted signs. It happens at night with neon lights. And most of my work is about looking for things that are crazy colors. It's not the subject mechanically, like is it a car, is it a tree, is it a person, but the, does it have wild colors and do the colors play well together? What is it about those wild colors that play well together that attracts your eye? It's usually a matter of being vividly saturated primary colors and that the colors are, you know, people analyze this as opposed to me who somebody looks at it and just says, oh, that looks good. Um, tend to be at opposite positions or related positions on a color wheel, either opposite colors like yellow and purple, or, of course, everything in the motion pictures is all orange and blue. You've got a blue background and an orange foreground lit by flames or something like that, and that really stands out. And I just look for things like that. It's mostly what grabs me, and whatever grabs me, I go off and photograph. I don't really ask a whole lot of why. It's just what, what, what intrigues me. Have you been able to put your finger on those things that grab you a little more than those that don't? It's mostly color. I mean, it's entirely okay. color. What's the textures behind the color, I tend to be intrigued by just the gritty or mechanical things, uh, constructions, abandoned buildings. Um, I'm not sure if 
things like old junk intrigues me just because it's old junk or because it tends to have odd colors on it sometimes. It's usually when I see junk, it's not important that it's junk, but if it's got some old faded colors, which indeed are quite vivid. For instance, if there's a, a green-painted building, which is weathering away below the green is some vivid red or some rust or something, then you get the play between the two colors. So how do you photograph these colors? You know? What's your system? The system is the easy part. And a lot of people, unfortunately, think it's the tools. It's not the vision. Uh, the tools have changed over the decades. Uh, my favorite tools are Fuji's Velvia 50 film, which really picks up colors and explodes them the way that I remember them. Uh, and has however big a camera that I can carry at the moment. Uh, my 4x5 camera, which is a big thing with the hood you put over your head, the big bellows and a tripod, is my favorite because when I finally get my film back, it gives me the most to work with. And for years, I kept looking for smaller cameras that could use larger film. Uh, 35 millimeter was never a big draw. That's essentially an amateur format or a format for sports and news uh, when it comes to serious uh, still photography. And, of course, today everything's gone digital because of the ease of taking lots of pictures and not having to carry a lot of stuff. And so today, probably my favorite digital camera is Nikon's D200. But, uh, again, those are very uh, passing things. The D200 will be obsolete in another year, and there will be some other digital camera from Japan, which I'll probably use instead. What will replace it? What will replace it is a camera that simply is just smarter. Uh, the Japanese have been incredible these past few years at innovating better and better cameras. And the reason for that is quite simple. It's, it's the very early days of digital photography, much like home computers were back in the 60s and 70s, where every week was some major you know, industry-changing innovation. Uh, digital photography is in the same place right today. Uh, for instance, people are all shooting digital cameras, and I saw this come about uh, back in 2002. Nobody did because they cost $4,000 a piece. And as the Japanese brought the prices down and the performance up, of course, from around 2003, 2004, everybody pretty much just switched. And the way you see this is go to a public place like the zoo and just look what everybody's carrying around. That usually tells you where the market is. In any case, the reason for the continued innovation is just the fact that everything's really so bad right now. I mean, it's good, but two or three years we're going to look back to today and say, oh, yeah, well, those are the, you know, those, <laughs> those are the bad days. Today is the good days. What changes, which is what most hobbyists don't realize, it's not the resolution, and it's not really anything you can put a finger on. It's all the magical little things that go into making the camera work well, which is the firmware. And some cameras simply work well, work fast, and are well-designed to be used by a photographer, doesn't get in his way trying to make his pictures. Other ones have way too many menus, or don't have the right menus. Sony has a big problem, and I spoke to them about this, and I just didn't want to hear the answer. Uh, there are certain features which are not very well known to a non-photographer that simply aren't on some of their cameras. And the photographer, like me, can work around the lack of those features by kind of repurposing a different feature. But that's the reason I don't use those cameras, and the cameras that I do use are the ones that just happen to fit my style, or also the color interpretation. Just like film, every digital camera is different. It's not a matter of good or bad or measuring well. It's a matter of when I go out in nature and make an image, I want it to look a certain way. And as cameras get better, they're better at giving me that look, although it's a matter of personal preference as well. Some cameras have more adjustments. Some of those adjustments let me get closer to what I want to see. And as time goes on, there'll be better interpretations. The Nikon D200 I just bought, what's flown under most of the radar, all of the radar of all the camera viewers who are sitting there photographing test charts, is the thing just looks better. The colors are much better and much warmer. 
I used to have to use a warm-colored, a slightly amber-colored glass filter called an 81A, and also dial the camera's adjustments to make it look warmer, which means more orange, uh, to get the results I wanted. And when I got this new D200, everything was coming out way too orange until I finally said, wow, the camera's just doing what I wanted to do so I could take off my glass filter and set it to neutral and just leave it on automatic and it just gets what I want without going too blue. Can you pretty much count on all the D200s or the Nikon D50s being the same? Yeah, from one camera to the next, I've seen no variation. But you mention that the lenses sometimes vary. Each one is as different as each person is. Absolutely. Uh, in a camera, there's not that much that can move. There's a thing that holds the lens onto the camera, and then there's the actual either the film or the image sensing chip, and those are two pieces. So there's only so many ways that those can go wrong, and those, I mean, the manufacturing plants, once they're set up properly, I mean, they're always dead on. A lens, well, think about it. It's pretty easy to realize has maybe a dozen pieces of glass in there, all these little teeny pieces of glass. Now, mind you, each piece of glass is not even flat. It has to be ground properly and then properly cut out of the middle of itself, just like uh, eyeglasses have to be cut in the right way. And so there's so many ways to go wrong in making a lens that if any one of those goes wrong, the lens is going to come out different than every other lens. And in actual manufacturing uh, and design, it's a lot of work when they design for manufacturers called tolerancing. They expect that everything is made to within certain levels of tolerance, and those tolerance levels are controlled by how much money they want to put into the lens because it costs more to do it more precisely. And that's a very important part of the design of the lens. So essentially, it's designed, everything will kind of vary a little bit, and that's okay. Things should not vary beyond a certain range. A problem is with zoom lenses, you know, shake them around. They shake. <laughs> they make noise. Things are moving around. They're supposed to. But as things get older or if you drop the thing and things get out of alignment, that too is going to change the performance of the lens. So I've seen I'll take two lenses out of the box, and they'll actually be a little bit different. It's an extremely subtle thing, and normal people shouldn't even worry about looking for it because it's a matter of you're looking at details that don't really count. But if you do look for those things, and I do, yeah, you will see differences, especially with zoom lenses today. Does that question your normalcy? No. <laughs> Explain your question. <laughs> the fact that you look about it. The fact that you look at it. Oh, well, as an artist, I worry about things that most people don't. What do you worry about? Well, I don't so much worry, but whenever I get a piece of equipment, in fact, that's what, that's what started my website. Anytime a new piece of equipment comes in, because I also have a technical background and the depth of understanding and understand what makes these things tick, is, you know, I'd be tempted to want to take it apart, my curiosity. And well, I won't actually disassemble things. I certainly go off and test them out in every possible devious way to see what their limits are. And it's important to learn what their limits are, what they can do and what they can't do. And I do that in my off hours, because once I've learned that, Using it to make an image is easy because I know exactly where the limits are and I'm not guessing in the process of creating an image. And so quite simply go out and run tests, things like sharpness. People worry too much about sharpness. It was Ansel Adams who said there's nothing worse than a sharp photograph of a fuzzy idea. It's important to photograph be of something worthwhile. And it doesn't matter how sharp it is. But the too many people cruising the Internet spend too much time worrying about uh, minute aspects of sharpness or contrast, which really have nothing to do with the quality of an image. You talk about uh, when you photograph that it's important to see the whole picture in proper perspective, to see what's going on. What do you mean proper in the term proper perspective? Well, it's, things need to look good. Um, when it comes to photography, a photograph is, is, is a snippet of reality. A photograph has nothing to do with reality. People don't realize that. A photograph is usually a small rectangle with sharp edges. It's only two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. Uh, it basically has no relationship at all to reality. When people are photographing, 
they need to understand that the final image is, well, today I think it's all on a screen that glows, or <laughs> it used to be prints that were hung on the wall, is it's not at all like reality. And oftentimes photographs fail because people think they're going to capture reality. Well, reality has smells and feelings and winds blowing and sound, um, which aren't in a photograph. And so it's difficult to abstract the image that one is trying to create and imagine what the final result will look like and then realize, gee, this isn't going to work and not make that kind of a picture. Like a photograph of a tree. We look at a tree, it's three-dimensional, it's wonderful, it's alive. An easy visual exercise is simply close one eye. And oftentimes people go, wow, the fun's gone. And George Carlin made some mention about that, about staring at a fence the wrong way. Like, wow, you know, suddenly the, the optical illusion goes away. Anyway, that's a good exercise into learning how things are going to look in 2D on a flat image. And because of that, a lot of the tree images I think about making, I don't make. And that's also why a lot of people who make certain images just don't get what they want. They're photographing fall colors, and some of the images look flat. Well, that's because they are flat. But knowing that, I have to work extra hard to go off and try to make an image that looks like it has some depth to it, even though it really doesn't. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Ken Rockwell. I learned about Ken when I was researching cameras on the Internet. He has a website. It's KenRockwell.com. I wrote to him and asked if we could have this conversation. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ken, you talk about the proper perspective. What In perspective to what? Well, how, in other words, how wide is the picture? Oh, well, how wide? When it comes to the shape of an image, it can be any shape the artist wants. Ansel Adams, one of my, uh, <laughs> one of my idols, of course, he did good work, pointed out that all oh, because a camera comes a certain shape, I mean, a certain shape of picture, a certain shape rectangle, doesn't mean you have to make everything that shape. Ansel, every one of his prints, he would get out his cutter and cut to be the right shape. He just happened to start from whatever shape the camera had. He would visualize as he was making the image what shape the image would have. Um, I think more directly, your question was proper perspective. We get into proper or what looks good. Non-artists tend to think that there's some great standard or some great visionary in the sky or something that defines what a good picture is. Well, there isn't. The more one learns about art, the more one learns that there are no rules. The only thing that matters is do you like it? Um, it doesn't even matter if somebody else likes it. It's a matter of everybody has a different opinion of what's good or not. So a proper perspective is simply one that you like. It doesn't matter if your friends like it or not. You said that you're a curious person, and curiosity is the driving force in your life. Oh, that's right. Pretty much, I, I'm always curious about things. A little kid was taking things apart. Dad was an engineer, which helped me learn a lot. I was wondering what things were, how they worked, what would happen if. And when it comes to photography, I think the things that has always driven me is just, how is this going to look when I get this image back? It's like, isn't this neat? And that's kind of the fun of photography. I don't really care. That's a good point. I don't often display my images or print them up. Uh, it's just that magic when I would go to the laboratory and see what came out. And with digital, it's what we all love, which is looking at our little screen. And you can see it uh, immediately. Exactly. It's immediate. And just a matter of what can happen. It's a matter of, wow, well, what can I create with this? I got this nifty little tool. What can I create as takeaways that uh, are, are neat photographs? And part of that comes to with the curiosity sake is just seeing what's out there. I'm always looking for beautiful things. I, mean, I, I like beautiful things. Everybody else has different subjects, but I like things that I think look nice. It's a matter of trying to find those things, because I know they're out there, and if I sit at home, I'm just missing them. 
And if I get out there, I can see them. And it's, it's this driving force that, wow, I have to get out tonight when the light's good or sunset because if I don't, you know, something that might be beautiful forever might be lost if I don't go make it. So when you're out there with your, with your camera, ready to take a, a picture, what is and what is not important to create a compelling image? For me, everybody has different ideas about that, and everybody wants different things. For me, it's strong colors. And what creates the strong colors in most of what I photograph is the natural light, which is usually the sun. And for me, it's having the sun, the last few minutes of sunlight in the evening, and the first few minutes of direct sunlight in the morning, which are very orange. The background of the sky is still blue, but the sun, when people watch the sunset, is orange. Well, the light that it makes and casts on the land is also orange. And you get an orange and blue play, which are opposite colors, which really bring things out in an image, kind of make the orange stand out and the blue push back. What is not important, then, when you're creating an image? Hmm. I'm not sure so much what's not important, but what's important to make sure is not in an image, if that's a weird way to replace an answer, is that photography is an art of excluding things. Because when one makes a photograph, everything is in it. When a painter paints an image, it's an art of inclusion. Because... Unless someone deliberately paints something into an image, it's not there. Our eyes, of course, are very good at focusing on our point of interest. So we see something's exciting, we make a photograph of it, we get it back. It doesn't look good because all the things that we didn't see when we were making the image because you weren't concentrating on them have this really sad ability to now stand out in our photograph. It's the old beer can or, or a piece of trash in the corner or something or just a, a, uh, an irrelevant article is somehow in there. And sadly, we don't see it when we make a photograph, but we certainly see it when we look at the photograph, which is just a weird thing about human perception. So it's important when making a photograph to look all around, quite consciously, around the borders and everywhere in the image and see what doesn't belong. And that's extremely important when people start learning to make good photographs because it's astounding what's in there. And the Photoshop doesn't help you get rid of all this stuff. People who don't work on Photoshop think it magically fixes everything. No, it doesn't. It's just a tool similar to the other tools you've had in the past 150 years to paint things out. Like an eraser or a pair of scissors. Exactly. In the old days, meaning the 1800s, film couldn't even see clouds. Um, at the same time, they took a photograph of a landscape, and landscape photographers would have favored uh, negatives of clouds and would burn those into the top of a print so there'd be a pretty sky. <laughs> it's been done all along. People have painted things out. Uh, I mean, all photographers know this. I mean, things like spotting a print, you just get the paints the various colors just paint over what you don't want or scratches or dust or whatnot. Um, so the, uh, the lay people think Photoshop is some weird change, but no, it's, it's been, it makes it a little easier, but it's the same thing skilled photographers have been doing for decades. But when you say things, you know, if that's a good answer to your question, it's that people need consciously to remove things from the photograph that don't belong there because otherwise they're going to collect there because they're not noticed by our eyes when we make the photograph. Ken Rockwell, on your website, KenRockwell.com, you say that uh, you spend your full time putting together and maintaining your website because you want the information that you have to be out there. That's kind of like Radio Curious, though I don't spend full time on it. Where does this impetus to give to the world come from? Gee, I just feel that that's what the whole point of the Internet was, is to, <laughs> well, at least a certain decade. It's been around since 1960s, actually did become uh, the, the lay people could get to it until 19, early 1990s when the browser was first invented. But uh, someone told me some time ago that the meaning of life was the best, this was the best explanation I ever heard was, 
it's for everybody to take whatever skill or ability they have and share it with everybody else. And, you know, I've never found a better definition than that. I happen to be particularly skilled uh, because back when I used to have real jobs, uh, doing technical writing and the ability to take very complicated things and make them immediately available to everybody and make them very clear. And I feel that's my gift. And so luckily, uh, with the good contributions and so forth that people give me on my website, I've been able to devote my entire energy to taking everything I know about photography and putting it up there to share with everyone. You also say you're a big kidder, and you like to fool around now and then and simply make stuff up. How do we know when that's happening and when that's not happening? You know, people don't, and that's just it. Since I do the website essentially for entertainment, um, there was an article, there was a skit on Monty Python's Flying Circus where the guy was trying to read, talking about parenthetical remarks and stuff, and he was trying to say, well, maybe I'll just move my hands over me as I read this you know, thing, give you parentheses. And I think I mentioned on my site that maybe I should code everything or I'm kidding about in green or red text or something. That'd take the fun away. Yeah, I think when I talk about elephant phallus hide covering cameras, again, that stuff is a joke. And when I talk about other things, uh, which are more factual, um, essentially they're right. Obviously, all my opinions are my opinions. But uh, since nobody's paying me to do this, it's not like I make any uh, any writ that it's anything more than uh, my personal opinion. Do you own any stock in the companies that you mention on your website? No. Uh, you know, a common misconception is people think I get money from these companies or even get free stuff from them. No, Nikon won't even – I think they put me on their press release list, but I don't hear about new things coming out from Nikon. I hear about a reader of mine – from some part of the globe where things have been introduced first that day, we'll say, hey, did you hear about such and such? I'm like, no, I didn't. Thanks very much. So, so I'm just basically like all of my readers. I'm a guy who just loves to make pictures and like to share it all. The, the site actually started is that uh, I would always take very good notes. I used to jot them down on my computer someplace because I realized that when I would do an experiment and learn what worked well, I'd write it down so I could find it again. And then I realized that if I simply put it up on a website, not only could I find it again at home, but if I was in some foreign country, I could always look it up on somebody else's computer. I never promoted my website. I did it. I just put it out there, and people started to discover it and then started to point other people to it, and that's how it uh, got the popularity that it did. Let's be philosophical for a minute. Taking what you've learned, the theory of getting the picture with the bright color, uh, of seeing the whole picture in proper perspective, are you able to transfer those observations into society in general and apply them on a wider scale of the society that we live in now, socially, economically, legally, humorously, or whatever? No, I think it was kind of like I asked an artist once when I had read a review of his, uh, his, his exhibit, and I went off and asked him that. I said, gee, the reviewer said you thought you were talking about this in your images. He goes, oh, that's, well, I can't say that on radio. He says, oh, that's baloney. Um, <laughs> he said, you know, he says, when I make images, I make them because I just like what I'm making. Same thing for me. I don't think about their meaning. I don't think about any of that. When I create an image, it's just me creating an image. And all the other artists I've spoken to agree. It's art critics who put words into their mouths saying that, you know, they're trying to address this issue of social this or blah, blah, or whatever. But no, I, I just make it because it looks good. So you're not an art critic? No. And what was intriguing was, is, again, when people go to art history class, um, <laughs> when I talk to other artists who've been through and gotten their MFAs and, you know, from big schools like Yale and stuff, so yeah, the teachers are all telling you all this stuff and making you analyze and, you know, putting words in your head for what this artist was thinking or what that artist was thinking. But if you actually were able to talk, of course, most of the artists are dead, but talk to living artists or the artists that these people become, and no, that's not what they're thinking. 
of course, there were journalists, and that's, well, I don't want to call my journalist friends not artists, but I mean, that's not their main focus. A journalist is trying to tell a story, and oftentimes trying to affect change, and I have friends of mine that do a very good job of it. But they're not thinking of their pieces purely as a piece of art. They're thinking of them as trying to represent reality, or at least show people something that maybe they wouldn't see otherwise. What I'm showing people that they wouldn't see otherwise is beautiful things I come across. In showing the, those things that they wouldn't see otherwise, are you trying to affect or maneuver any kind of change? Absolutely not, except maybe make somebody happier. To, to clarify that, being a website, things go up there, they stay there forever. I started it back in the 1990s. Sometimes some, everything, of course, is written in the context of when I wrote it. The problem is that it stays there forever, written in that context, and there's somebody to read it five years later, and it, it, they'll read it in the context of their today, and it might not make sense. My wife will go off and proofread stuff and says, hey, what's that? That's a lot of baloney. I'm like, oh, yeah, that became obsolete. You know, that doesn't count anymore. So but they have like, to see it in the context in which you wrote it back in 1990, 1995. Yeah, so when I talk about I kid around a lot, I do. And I reserve the right when I make comments to make stuff up. I used to make stuff up or kid around a lot more five years ago. Today, with all my camera reviews, and the camera reviews are all serious. I just think when I would kid around about, I don't kid around as much. That's a problem. Now this is a full-time thing that people just ask me for so much, and I'm able to, luckily, spend the whole day, or <laughs> full daytime anyway, contributing through my website. That's a good question. The thing about kidding around is one of the things that have been there for a while. I used to have some joke things as well, and those kind of fell by the wayside because I don't really have the time to kid around as much. As actually there's so much new stuff, especially with all this digital stuff. When I started the site in the 1990s, a uh, camera would come out, and honestly, a Nikon camera would be current, the best camera out there for like five years as they'd introduce something newer. With digital today, people need to realize this stuff's disposable. You buy it, you use it for a while, and it's always going to be useful. But after a year or two, there's going to be something that is twice as easy to use that costs a half as much as what you paid for the old camera, and you're going to want to throw it away. And it's not the Japanese trying to do deliberate obsolescence. The good news is, is that it's continually getting much, much better than it is today. They're making the best they possibly can today, but they learn so much more each year that it gets better. Well, Ken Rockwell, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Gee, I'll admit that most of my reading seems to be online, and getting to read real literature is something I, I wish I had more time to do. Kurt Vonnegut is my favorite author. Um, the book I'm reading right now is actually one sent to me by a reader of my website called 10,000 Miles of America, written by Richard A. Selesky. What makes the book interesting is is he had a real job which he didn't like and figured, well, what the heck? Why don't I just get on my bicycle and just pedal around to each of the, 50, each of the 48 states and see what happens? And even though his book is self-published and prefaced saying, well, you know, there's a lot of typographical error here because it did this all by myself, I just find it, it's really interesting because of all the experiences he had, just the curiosity that he had, saying, well, what's going to happen if I go down this road kind of a thing? Or, you know, what will these people do? Will they be nice to me? That kind of thing. And he has this ability, in spite of the typographical errors, uh, to express things as clearly as Kurt Vonnegut did. In other words, just in one short sentence, somehow covers some, some brilliant observation about all of humanity that we're all like, yeah, that's a good point. How about that? Well, Ken Rockwell, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Ken Rockwell is the host of a website on photography, among other things, that may be found on the Internet at www.kenrockwell.com. The book he recommends is 10,000 Miles of America by Richard A. Suleski. This book may be found at 
www.loadedtouring.com. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.